Hello, and welcome to Stuff We See. This is your host, James Kent, and with me is Teal, and uh, get ready to hit the start button on part two of Brian De Palma. Do <laughs> you got your wig handy, Teal, uh, for your double? I've got a wig, and I'm doing this whole podcast through a mirror. Oh, good. Yeah, doubles. It's a little hard to see, but I'm actually... <laughs> Bouncing my voice off a mirror. Yes. But it, but it, the whole thing's a dream. So, And then it's actually um, the point of view is uh, third party <laughs> with, the, with the camera uh, posing as you. Yes. And it's, uh, of course, uh, <laughs> operated by Stephen uh, H. Burham. Yes. I like this guy's cinematography. Oh, Stephen H. Burham? Yep. Yeah. And of course, you know, another unsung hero of the De Palma uh, mystique, mm-hmm. uh, not every movie, but uh, from Body Double on, mm-hmm. most of Brian De Palma's films, except for a couple of the big budget ones that uh, probably he didn't have editorial right. control, were edited by this guy, Bill Pankow. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Did the majority of uh Brian De Palma's films, and I think that's another thing when you have when you're working with a similar cinematographer, yeah, an editor, and uh, you know the the people who even score his movies. He, he yeah, what's the name of, of this guy? I can't remember his name. Oh, uh, uh, Pino Donaggio. Pino Donaggio, amazing. Yeah, and then he also works with a uh, Japanese Ryako Sakamoto. Okay, uh, he, he did Snake Eyes and a couple of others. I guess when uh, Pino was taking a day off or something. Okay, it, it is fun having watched a lot of his films in the last few weeks uh most of them you know rewatches, but i yeah. also so i caught up with a lot of new ones but it's it, when you just see so many of one director's films in a short period of time you really pick up stuff that you're just not going to pick up when you only watch one as they come out every couple of years well and it yeah it becomes a whole different experience i'm paying attention to uh, the shots in a different way. I mean, I, I always do that when I'm watching a movie, but I, I was having this experience watching one of these and remembering some of the shots the first time I had seen it, but liking them more now. I remember thinking some of them were a little like overdone and distracting and some of the Dutch angles were a bit much. Uh, but now I like them. Yeah, I, I do too, because he does them so frequently. And, and you know what? I find even a movie that I started this whole thing off watching Dress to Kill on Criterion yes. Channel, but then I followed that up with a film that I'd seen parts of, but not the whole thing of Femme Fatale. Yes. And my, the weirdest thing was it was on Amazon Prime. Yeah. And I hadn't, you know, again, I hadn't seen even parts of it in a, several years. And I'm watching this and I noticed first off that the print just didn't seem oh. as high quality. Yeah. But it was weird. It wasn't that it was soft. It was that it looked like it was some other generation print that it almost had a digital look to it. Interesting. And I actually thought, well, I'm like, well, maybe this was early video we shot this on. And I'm like, this just this doesn't strike me as what I expect from Brian Palma. And that already took me out of the movie a little bit. Yeah. The second thing was, is that a lot of the film in parts is spoken in French. Because yes. it takes place, it starts off in Cannes. Yes. But this print I was watching was not, uh, there was no subtitles. Oh, man. Okay. And while I'm watching, I was pausing and I had to go on the internet and was reading various <laughs> accounts that maybe that he had actually in the theater release 
or maybe some prints, there was no subtitles, that he was keeping people in the dark as oh, to wow. what the details was. And I said, okay, well, that was an aesthetic choice because I had actually turned on the forced subtitles. The closed caption, yeah. And I hate that because then it'll say, right, sound, right, yes. large bang in the background. <laughs> and I just it bothers me that they just you know say yeah. everything, and I get it. but uh, So I couldn't watch it that way. And I said, well, I should just watch it the way you wanted to. But it was hard to not pick up certain details. Yeah. However, after watching many of these De Palma films, I discovered it was on HBO Max. Oh, okay. And so I started rewatching and just rewatching Femme Fatale. I've only watched uh, rewatched 40 minutes of it. Yeah. I was enjoying it a thousand times more. Yeah. Because after you go through the journey, you understand some of the campy performances and you know what it's all about. Yeah. His films are so rewatchable because it's the details that he sets up. Right. That you may or may not pick up. And I picked up one little tidbit from Femme Fatale, which I'm not sure how familiar you are with that. Well, let me say, I have watched the opening sequence probably 20 times. Okay. I can't remember exactly where the opening sequence or if it's like the, the afterwards. There's that picture that you get a flash of that has the necklace. Yes. And there's a picture. And what he does is that he shines a tiny little light that hits the picture right on the necklace the locket and it's a it's a clue as to a moment that's going to happen at the end of the film right and it doesn't need you don't have to have that detail in there but he goes for it but he yeah. puts that in there um and it's just these are things that i think delight him yeah and i like i said i've watched the beginning of this movie so many times probably the first 20 minutes that the whole the whole jewelry heist can sequence and that gets better and better Every time you watch it. Yes. And it's got uh, Bolero is the music. Over well, it. it's a version. It's it's a restylized version. And that's also by Ryuchi Sakamoto. Okay. Um, but that was a it was an important, uh, you know, to use that the theme of it um, for the right. opening, um, which is ironic is that you didn't see Domino, right? I did not see Domino. Well, the ending climax happens around a bullfight. Oh, interesting. Which he did not have the funds for. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I, you know, so, but that's just, he does these things. So, like, again, he builds on things where I just recently watched in between part one and part two, Snake Eyes. Yeah. And these events that happen around a main event, which is in this case uh, for Snake Eyes, is a boxing match. Right, right, in right. In Atlantic City. And it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a bottle movie. You like those bottle movies. It is. Yeah, it is kind of a bottle it takes movie. takes all yeah. place in a, you know, a hotel casino in one night. Yeah. And all of these events that get broken down and then re-looked at. And uh, he, again, with this domino, his big set piece is where they ran out of money. Oh, wow. And he couldn't do it. But then I watched another film, which I had no memory of because I thought it was so terrible at the time. <laughs> but with all this reevaluation, I thought I should reevaluate The Black Dahlia. Oh, yeah. And one of the things about that is I didn't get to see it in the theater because I heard it was so terrible and I was disappointed because if it was supposed to be good, I would go out to see a De Palma movie. But his reputation had become, well, if I hear it's bad, I'm staying away. Right, right. Yeah. 
And it, it and boy, did people hear that movie was bad. Yeah. So I stayed away. But the one thing I did hear was the cinematography was great from uh, Vilmos right. Sigmund. And then he got a nomination for uh, best cinematography. So I was very yeah. intrigued and I caught it, I think, when it was on cable. And the problem was and it always irked me, but I wasn't I wasn't going to go out and see the super widescreen copy is it was formatted to fit my HTTV. Oh. So it became a 185 movie right. or, or a 178 movie instead of the 235. And so that means they blow it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't even appreciate the cinematography of it. That's very annoying. So I got to appreciate the cinematography this time around. But you know what? I had a similar reaction as I did the first time is that I felt that the cinematography, like it looked gorgeous lighting wise, but it didn't really fit the movie. I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> I had another experience, which I think relates here. With Black Dahlia or a different one? A different one that I decided to revisit. Oh. Which I had been really excited for at the time in 1989. Oh, yes. I'm going to say it's Casualties of War. It's Casualties of War. I had been really excited for this movie. I ran out to see it and I was not crazy about it. Well, you know, it's interesting. Just so for people in the in the chronology, the reason why you were excited about it and I was excited about it was because in 1987, he made The Untouchables. Exactly. And that was a big hit. And it, it was a big hit and it kind of put him into a different sphere. And so I was, and it allowed him to do a movie like Casualties of War. Which I think he'd wanted to do for a long time. Yeah. Because his buddies, Coppola got to make his. Everyone else got to make a Vietnam movie. Right. So he wanted to make his, you know, take on it. Uh, and of course, yes, he had been building and in 87 with the untouchables what that did was it put him in the stratosphere of a list exactly yep it, it put him on the a list and casualties of war was his first real a list movie actually it came out in august that year after the untouchables yeah and it was about a you know a few weeks before i was heading off to film school at nyu where shortly i would meet you our casualty of war so i went with a couple of buddies Opening night, I think. Yeah, I saw. I, I I might have seen it opening night. Yeah, I was super psyched for it. I went. I think it was a ten o'clock show. So we go to a later show, and it was like no one there. Oh man! And I knew I'm like, oh, I guess people <laughs> yep. are not seeing the Vietnam movies anymore. And this was a thing where you settle in and you're just waiting for it to take off. Yeah. And it just doesn't. No, and and then it. It, there's this thing that happens in a lot of De Palma movies where, and, and I think I talked about this briefly on the last show, but there's sort of the first hour is kind of this incredible setup with all these sequences, and then it kind of stops and has to explain itself. Yes. And go into the next phase. And Casualties of War has uh, two sections, really. The first section is the crime. Yeah. And then the second half of the film is the aftermath of the crime. Yeah. And some of the stuff during the crime. Well, the other thing that happens here is that Sean Penn is there for the crime. Yes. But he's really not there for the aftermath. He's got a couple of scenes and his performance I found, you know, just incredible. And so I felt like the crime was kind of interesting 
the aftermath was totally boring, but okay. So in the first two minutes <laughs> I had this, uh, you know, he's on the train Yes, and he sees this woman Yes, and I hated this about the movie when I first saw it. I hated this whole sequence. Uh, and that it bookends the movie. It's terrible. It, it, the ending is just shockingly bad when he goes and talks to the woman. Another trademark of many De Palma films. Yeah. So I'm watching, and in the first two minutes, he's on the train. I'm watching, and and I and my thought immediately is, the problem is that this is a Brian De Palma movie, and it was because of the cinematography. And what I realize is that his aesthetic, his over-the-top performances, his showy camera work, all of that made it seem like the film, it wasn't taking its subject matter very seriously. I know exactly what you're saying because when he went back to Raising Cain, which we're going to get into in this program, um, that is the kind of waters where he's way more familiar and he does better exactly at. that's the same problem with bonfire of the vanities by the way wrong filmmaker to make that movie wrong filmmaker whereas the untouchables it worked because the story is kind of larger than life anyway it didn't need a realistic emotional treatment whereas casualties of war really needed some realism and some weight and some seriousness to it and he makes it kind of silly I don't know. Maybe this is what my friends were in, in tune with. Yeah. While I was patiently trying to take it seriously, yeah, I was getting annoyed because in my mind I was like, "Yeah, this film really isn't that good." But I'm trying to evaluate it. Yeah, but my my buddies were having none of it, and they were acting up. I mean, we were you oh, know, 19 at right, the time, right, right. <laughs> and they started making fun of the movie, being obnoxious, and maybe being inappropriate to the situation of the crime. Uh-huh. And I was getting embarrassed because yeah. I'm like piped down because I think the few people that were in the theater were getting annoyed with us. Right. And this happened one other inappropriate time when we all saw Prince of Tides. <laughs> where we started making jokes and my friends were making all sorts of crass jokes and that some of the jokes kind of tied in with an event that happens in the movie that we didn't know. And when that scene comes on in the movie that mirrored the jokes that they've been making throughout the entire <laughs> film, our jaws dropped because we were oh. like, how do we know that this was happening? Maybe there's something clued into the film, but, but they ruined the movie for me that I actually had to tell them to shut up a few times. And, wow. but ultimately they were right. And I was wrong because the movie was terrible, right? It's literally one of my least favorite Brian De Palma movies. I saw it with like a packed theater in Times Square. Oh, Casualties of War? Yes. Because, <laughs> you know, they made a big deal of it. If I, I've gone through the newspapers and in uh, New York at the time, they, there was like 70 millimeter prints of the movie. Oh, yeah. It was a big deal. It was supposed to be the prestige, going to get nominated for a bunch of Oscars kind of film. And, of course, it was uh, it was not anywhere near Oscar night. Yeah. And it... And so I think, yeah, it's a mismatch of tone, and it seems like that's what you're talking about with Black Dahlia, too. Like, the cinematography doesn't quite fit the story. Yeah, and he doesn't even get to do, with the, with the exception of one or two uh, little moments in the movie, you don't get the typical De Palma uh, touches. Right. But then there's another big problem with the movie that's very evident. The movie doesn't make a whole lick of sense. 
<laughs> there are so many characters being talked about and they are there are moments that they're on the screen, but you don't have a chance as an audience right. member to match up the names with the people. So this is it's James Elroy, right? Apparently, like the early cuts and early cuts never survived the final, but it was three hours long and the final movie is under two. Yeah. And it is so clear because the whole thing is there's this ridiculous like relationship between these two cops that are supposed to be friends and they have these nicknames Fire and Ice. That's right. <laughs> and um, the thing is one of them gets obsessed with the Black Dahlia case. But the problem is we show him in a couple of moments being obsessed with the Black Dahlia case. But they are obviously cut from where we miss all the parts where he's actually getting obsessed with the Black Dahlia case because these moments happen maybe only 10 or 15 minutes after the Black Dahlia is even murdered. Oh, man. Okay. Because it takes like 40 minutes to get to the murder. So this would be <laughs> this would be an instance where it would be interesting to see a director's cut. Yeah, and there is none that exists. I've been checking because I don't think the movie would be any better because – Clearly, what we do have are really <laughs> terrible acting performances. Right. I mean, you know what? I love Scarlett Johansson, but and I think she's blossomed as an actress over the years. Right. But you put her in this movie, and we're talking 2006, right? She was not, she was like maybe 25, 26 when she made this. She's bad. Yeah. And <laughs> she's bad in it. Aaron Eckhart. Oh, man. A lead, a co lead, Aaron Eckhart. Yeah. No. I, 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 I don't want to say bad things about Aaron Eckhart, but I don't have anything good things to say. Well, I'm just I don't I, I don't know the guy. I'm just talking about performances. Not that it's not that he like when he's a side character. OK, but he's, he's fine. Just, yeah, he just doesn't get me as a lead. And then Josh Hartnett. So you put the two together. That's what you're giving me. Those are the they, there's no there's no like bro chemistry going on between these two. Um, and you're just not that interested in watching them. In the first place, uh, here's the most interesting part of the entire film. Yeah. Well, there's this weird, creepy family that tie into the plot, even though, again, the whole movie's such a mess that it's right. just, it's really bad. But they're this super, like, rich family, and the performances are so insanely over the top and eccentric. Uh, there's this British actress, Fiona Shaw. Oh, yeah. And she plays this, like, social ape mom. And it's the and she dials it up to thousand. It's so great. <laughs> well, and, sometimes when De Palma gets people to do that, it's fantastic. And, and that like almost, almost not quite, but is almost worth it. And then he casts his old buddy William Finley, oh, the yeah. guy from Phantom of the Paradise, and a whole yep. bunch of others. Uh, you know, he makes cameos. He's in, in Dressed to Kill, and, and he's in yeah. Fury. And usually, it's just a cameo. That's all I could get him in in most. Uh, parts he plays this guy that it's still unclear to this to this day what his relationship is to the main characters in the story <laughs> but he's a he's a bad guy and he is disfigured by i guess the socialite father okay. and, and a lot of this is told in flashback right but the best part is they disfigure his face not quite unlike his character in phantom of the paradise oh and fascinating I realized, okay. I realized that brian de palma is doing another callback um and this was william finley's last screen performance uh, oh, he passed okay. away several years afterwards okay yeah, and those performances, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to let Casualties of War go entirely yet without mentioning Michael J. Fox, 
But I, I sort of liked him in that, but it just felt like the part was bigger than him. And I, not because he's short, but he's not bad. He, he's not, ter- there's nothing wrong with his performance. It just doesn't bring a lot of layers to it. Well, this was his big moment to be a dramatic actor. Yes. And it didn't work. And it didn't work. And it's, it's, it's part of the failure of the movie. It's part of like the mismatch in tone. It's like you, you miscast also, and it undermines the movie. And sometimes he miscasts. The Black Dahlia is bad casting. Yeah. And again, I don't know how much he was involved in that. I mean, I really don't, but see, here's, he is a big miss. And I don't want to tell you this review that I read of somebody that uh, harkened back to when they saw it opening night in Chicago. They were very excited because they were being a big Brian De Palma fan. So they think they're going in and getting De Palma stuff. And I think that if he could have just done his version, it wouldn't have been, it would have been hokey and stuff, but it would have had that, that Brian De Palma stamp, right? Yeah. And this is where the big miss was. First of all, he says first 20 minutes, everybody's silent. But then slowly but surely, audience members, and it was a packed house because it actually did well opening weekend Okay, before word got out. Yeah. Uh, people started laughing. Oh, man. They started laughing throughout the movie. And then every time Aaron Eckhart or Josh Hartnett was called fire or ice, people started howling with laughter. And, and before he, and then so this guy said it was one of his favorite film experiences because by the end of the movie, you could hardly hear the movie from the laughter, right? And there's a scene where for some ungod reason, Josh Hartnett's character gets involved with the socialite daughter who's also a lesbian played by Hilary Swank. Yes. And another mismatched performance. Where <laughs> another, does, another miscast. Yep. And it doesn't make any sense why she, like, you can never figure out, well, what is her sexuality, right? And she's with this guy and it makes no sense. Well, there's a scene where, like, they're caught in this hotel room where Scarlett Johansson must have followed him, but that part must have got cut out, but she's there. And she's like, you're sick. She looks just like that dead girl. Right. And that's the whole subplot of the movie was that somehow Hillary Swank looked just like the Black Dahlia. Okay. Right. And that's why like the parents didn't <laughs> like this or something. It doesn't make right. any sense. But, yeah. But the person yelled out in the audience exactly what I was thinking when that part goes. And the person yelled out, but she looks nothing like her. <laughs> and it's the absolute truth. Hillary Swank looks nothing like the Black Dahlia character. And so Brian De Palma's big miss was he should have cast yeah. the same person as the Black Dahlia because that's what he does. He takes people like yes. in Femme Fatale, he has Rebecca Romaine who couldn't even carry one role. He has her play two roles. Yes. And yet she looks exactly <laughs> the same and nobody ever looks 100% exactly the same, but that's his whole bag. Yeah, that's what he does in, uh, in Obsession. That's what he does in Obsession. And then he goes back to the well in a brilliant little uh, throwback to his own movies with that passion movie. Yes. There's a whole twin sister thing. There's a whole twin sister thing that, yeah, there's a whole twin sister fake out. Yeah. And of course, there he does that thing where you have the rising shot of the fake out behind the character. Yes. Going in for the kill. Which is also the last shot of Raising Kane. Yes. I love that. That I mean, I don't love the way it ends, but I love that shot. That shot, yeah. It's a classic De Palma shot. So De Palma missed a huge opportunity to turn Black Dahlia into his own thing. Right. So here's what's interesting about, <laughs> I, I've been thinking a lot about this with De Palma, is that by all 
normal <laughs> rules of and there's no rules but you know it, it, the way his career went he should have had more control over his cuts you know after the untouchables he goes back he makes and, and casualties of war and bonfire of the vanities which are big a-list bombs well the last two are but he goes back to raising Kane, and you would think that like it's a low low budget movie you think he'd have some more control some more artistic control he'd have final cut like he should have been an auteur uh, something you said in the last episode is probably a clue yeah when you said that you had this uh, pitch meeting and a producer <laughs> right <laughs> when you said hmm i wonder what happened there with mission to mars and the producer said brian de palma happened yeah i think that those excesses on set and demands whatever they may be because i'm right. not sure those contribute now there's a famous famous uh writing piece that happened at the time the bonfire of the vanities came out mm -hmm. that De Palma made the mistake of like letting an EW writer or somebody okay. or vanity fair person on the set. <laughs> okay. I, I, I don't, I don't remember this. I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not quoting specifically the article, but I remembered when I reread this aspect of it was that, Oh yeah, I do remember at the time reading the piece and the piece basically exposed, you know, what, it, what insanity and, and indulgence was going on. And it tied in with something as an overheard conversation that I heard early that year in 1990 when I returned to NYU campus. Yeah. I was, I don't know what I was in line for, but there was a couple of film students that were there uh, from NYU in front of me. Yeah. And then one of them happened to have had an internship going on, it might have been at that very, very beginning of the summer. Okay. On Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh, wow. And they said that they were doing like six day weeks, 20 hour days, and that it was just insanity and there was nothing for people to do, but he was getting paid huge amounts of money uh, to be on this. And, it, and he was describing all this insane stuff. And part of me was like, well, that's just probably what it's like to be right. a big blockbuster. And then, of course, the movie came out and it was just a huge fizzle and I had no yeah. desire to see it because of that. And I eventually caught it on videotape yeah. with some friends. And I remember thinking, this isn't very good, but it's also not the worst. I also have had no desire to see it in its yeah, original I, conference. I've never seen it widescreen even. I saw it in the theater. You did? Yes. How did you do that? Because we would have been living together at the time. I forget what it came out during Christmas. And yep, I would have been away. And so you must have seen it when I was gone. I was at home with my parents and I went and saw it with them. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yep. And I have not seen it since. I remember uh, some cool steady cam shots. Well, of course, it has an opener <laughs> shot that's very kind of really sets up. And that's what he, he likes to do that. He likes to have these big pieces. Snake Eyes starts with like 12 minutes uh, they're in, they're cut very carefully so you don't notice, but it's like it looks like one entire shot. Well, yeah, he loves staging these kind of set pieces that have uh, that are you know complicated camera movements and intricate. They're intricate, but sometimes they're they're fairly uh, they're fairly small. Like sometimes they're big, like uh, in the Untouchables. Yeah, well, then he you know he he sort of redoes the Potemkin steps uh, at the train station. Yes. Um, so that's like a big set piece. Yeah, that's like a big set piece. And but then like in Raising Cane, there's some cool shots of the hotel where like somebody goes upstairs and the camera moves back downstairs. Uh, I want to go back 
a little bit. There's sort of three movies that I feel work as a team. Yeah. And those three movies are Dress to Kill, Body Double, and then Raising Kane. Yes. Um, but before we can get to Dress to Kill, I want to just talk about the fury for a moment oh yeah yeah which i did not watch i know it's it's very campy (laughs) it's very corny it's very dated in a way that movies in the 70s were made Mm -hmm. Uh, kirk douglas is in it and he's kind of hammy there's some really bad uh, rear projection tv uh, not tv there's some rear projection driving stuff in it like there's like this sort of like car chase and there's cops involved dennis franz is involved and uh oh man and and it would have just been better without this rear projection right but then there's a couple of these moments that de palma does and one takes place in this indoor amusement park Uh uh-huh where there's a creepy relationship with this supposed teenager kid, uh, which is Kirk Douglas's son, who's been kidnapped right. by government stooges and to use for his psychic powers. Yeah. And of course, but the kid, the guy's like 27, right? But he's playing right. like 18. And the funny thing is Amy Irving, who didn't look like a teenager in Carrie two years later is still playing a teenager <laughs> and she looks even more adult and she was like 27 at the time. But she's always an interesting actress to yeah. watch. I, I, I like her, but, this guy has a woman handler that he has a relationship with too. And they need to get out of this house that they're being kept in uh, just to keep him happy because it's, you know, his fury is, is getting unleashed. Right. And so they go off to this, you know, indoor amusement park, which just makes no sense, but they go. And then Bapama, as he uses his wandering camera, he focuses <laughs> on these robed Middle Eastern guys. Uh-huh. Which, if people don't know their history, prior to 9-11, if you saw Middle Eastern guys, they were usually going to be the butt of some joke, like yes. Jamie, Jamie Farr playing a Middle yes. Eastern guy in Cannibal Run or something like that. Uh, so these guys in their robes, they get on this like spinning uh, amusement ride. I think they were usually right. called a Trabant or something. And basically, De Palma builds a sequence where the guy, the kid who has the psychic abilities, he uses his fury rage and he snaps loose the bolts right. on this flying, okay. spinning indoor thing. And this cart that carries these three Middle Eastern guys goes flying <laughs> in the air and smashes into a window that happens to be where the other Middle Eastern guys are sitting. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really cool sequence that I remember from the trailer as a kid. Yeah, that sounds awesome. This makes me want to see the movie. <laughs> well, there's even better. There's a classic De Palma sequence. And when I'm talking about classic De Palma sequences, which he does not obsession, and he doesn't yeah. carry, and he doesn't thousands of his movies, is this? there's a whole sequence, and it usually involves a lot of slow motion, and mm-hmm. it's people doing things, and you cut to all these angles of other things, and a car may be driving really slowly, and people are jogging, right. and it's like almost painfully slow, Yep. and the music building, and <laughs> there's this moment where Amy Irving is the next person that the government's trying to get their hands right. on, right? And she's at this special school that I keep making fun of saying, when is she going to meet Professor Xavier? <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. It really does feel like she's at some like special school for kids with psychic <laughs> abilities. Um, and it's like so hokey because in this movie, they take psychic abilities very seriously as if it's mm-hmm. a thing that could actually happen. <laughs> Well, I think there. this is something that I think is sort of across the board with De Palma films is that there's something completely preposterous about the premise, even. Oh, this movie, The Fury is probably his most ultimately preposterous premise. 
Well, I, except for raising Cain. <laughs> I thought obsession was totally preposterous. <laughs> it was pretty preposterous. <laughs> yes, but nobody like had pulsating veins in their forehead and making things. I move. guess that's true. Yeah, but but it's just it's kind of silly, and, you, and you, but you have to kind of go along with it somehow. Well, in this movie, you have to you have to buy in that a grown adults and government <laughs> adults believe that people have these psychic abilities right. that they can hone and they can you know move. You know who did this really well, though? Who perfected that? Making it real was Cronenberg. Uh, yeah. Like scanners, that same yes. world exists, but you buy that world. <laughs> but you buy that world. Yeah. And you, you never totally buy. I mean, that was like the problem with casualties of wars. Like, I never quite totally bought that it was Vietnam. And yeah. Yeah. So. I think that was, you know what, you just said something. That was my biggest, well, the whole time we're watching it, I kept on waiting for it to feel like this was a Vietnam movie. And it doesn't. It, it feels doesn't, like a yeah. Brian De Palma movie. And it's a mismatch with the subject matter. So there's this thing where uh, Kirk Douglas is, wor- is working with this inside person to try to help get her get his son back. And the inside yeah. person is this actress, uh, Carrie Snodgrass. And she is also working with Amy Irving, who... Kirk Douglas has heard about as somebody who could maybe locate his son, you know, right, te- right. telepathically. So there's a whole like convoluted sequence of Carrie Snodgrass saying that she has to go out to get some medicine or something or pills. Uh-huh. And it's and she's like over acting about it, like trying to set right. all this stuff up so that she can get Amy Irving out and okay. it's so painful because of the slow motion buildup, <laughs> right. but it's, at the same time, it's like Da Palma is getting ready to pull all these orchestrated strings. And of course, the slow motion starts and Amy Irving gets out. And meanwhile, there's some handlers up the street that are there watching and waiting in case Amy Irving somehow was able okay. to sneak out. And they see her slow motion running out of the house and so they start their car up really slow and then of course there's some other events that happen that are going to interfere with that right and so he's cross-cutting and there's yeah. like a thousand things happening and then there's this like carrie snodgrass comes running out to protect amy irving and there's like dropped groceries and like five thousand other elements have to happen <laughs> but then then the music by of course um oh this one was by john williams did yeah. the score for this uh, then all of these things happen where the car that's supposed to go after Amy Irving gets into a car accident and then hits something, which then causes Carrie Snodgrass to get hit. And she goes flying into the windshield of the car. And she's like basically uh, decapitated in a sense with the glass hitting her neck. It's insane. This sounds great. It is this, so This sounds fantastic. fantastic. Okay. That's, yeah. <laughs> so- <laughs> That's well, worth it's, it's funny, you know, I mean, you were talking about how these films are rewatchable. Some of them are, you know, but <laughs> the Fury, I got to see the Fury. That's, yeah, that's and I fantastic. was like, I can't believe I've missed this movie. I, I, my wife and I watched it and it, we found it kind of Mystery Science Theater 3000 hilarious. But I think that's the thing. It's like sometimes the cheese is hilarious and fun and you kind of enjoy it with a smile on your face. And sometimes it just falls totally flat. But there, is, but there is a cheesiness to, to, you know, there's kind of a hokey, cheesy aspect to De Palma a lot of the time. Well, that's what I'm really discovering is that that his films, they do ride a line between, you know, taking it seriously and camp. And it's not, yes. I'm not sure whether or not De Palma always knows that what he's doing is campy. Right. Although he frequently i think and you mentioned this last week that some of his early films are like these subversive comedies yes 
he has a sense that there's humor in some of these things he's doing, uh, whether he thinks they're hokey or not an, another matter. But I, I think he definitely like gets into the joy and the humor of some of these over the top performances. So here's the thing is Piper Laurie had big disagreements with him on set. She had no idea what he was up to because she thought that this movie was a comedy. She was like, this is like, he's making me so over the top. She's like, and he was insisting this is a, this is a horror movie. And she's like, right. it is. So she would like, they'd have these takes. And at the end of the take, she'd start bursting out laughing because she couldn't believe she was right. saying this and having to do it like anybody would take it seriously. Interesting. So, <laughs> yeah. And it is, you know, it's funny. You can watch it as you, it, this, his movies work on a different level when you're a kid versus an adult. Because I watched Carrie a couple of years ago, uh, maybe not even two years ago. Yeah. And I watched it this time thinking it was very campy. But as a kid, I thought it was a pretty good horror movie. Right. But no, you watch it now. It's campy. It's pretty campy. But I don't care. I enjoy it. It's. But again, it's that same sort of thing where it's, uh, he's not going for the realism. Yeah. It's a heightened. It's a heightened reality. And I think that it's probably different than what Stephen King set out to do. Yeah. And that was King's first novel. And I actually feel yeah. like the movie, I enjoy it better than the book myself. But it's an enjoyable. I, I think that's the other thing is watching some of these movies is even though there's like, I was thinking, I'm thinking about Body Double where like there's some ridiculous stuff and it doesn't, you know, it's got a lot of problems, but like just watching it, I kind of had a smile on my face. I was just enjoying it. I, I enjoyed it immensely the second time. And, um, but so, so we're going to Dress to Kill. Now, when Dress to Kill came out, I was, it was 1980. I was only 10. Yeah. And I, I, I was able that summer to see The Shining. So instantly I thought I had a pass to see any R-rated <laughs> right, movie, right? right? But that was not, <laughs> that was not the case. And the, when the trailers came out for Dress to Kill, this thing looked great. Yeah. And at 10 years old, I can tell you, I don't think at the time I had even maybe seen Psycho yet. Right. And so the story and the comparisons to Hitchcock and, and Psycho. Yeah, you wouldn't, wouldn't would have been get. lost on me. Yeah. I didn't see Dress to Kill, obviously, uh, at 10 years old. Right. I did see, I, I would look back behind uh, my, my back uh, car window at it at the drive-in. It was playing oh, and funny. I was trying to sneak some peeks <laughs> at what was going on. And I remember seeing Angie Dickinson and, you know, and other things, but I didn't really get a good look. And of course I was old enough to read the papers and being a little right. bit of a movie fan and remember it was such a controversy. And, you know, anytime you hear the, the X rating. Yes. And so something having to be cut for X rating as a 10 year old, your mind goes wild as to yes. what could possibly have almost garnered this thing an X. So it almost, I didn't know that it almost got an X. Oh yeah. He had a cut. A lot, he had to cut several things. And if you actually go to the criterion yeah. extras, yeah. and which you can, because you know, criterion has it right now. They have a scene by scene comparison of the stuff that had to be cut. Oh wow. So you can see, and it's, he shows it in real time. So you watch the film right. and you see the extra stuff. Most of that was the shower scene at the beginning. Okay. And then also the uh, killing of Angie Dickinson. Okay. Which is much more violent. And I'm, and it's funny, even when you're talking about a one second here and a one second there. Yeah. That's, you know, he had to. He had to trim. Yeah. So like when you look at the two films, what was cut out of this to make it not X is maybe about seven seconds. Right. Okay. Uh, there's also something in a speech that Nancy Allen gives to Michael Caine when she's describing, when they're having that very sexual conversation. You did rewatch Dress to Kill, right? Oh, yes, yes. Okay. They cut some of the words. They, they had to dub in some things. 
Okay. In that last sequence when she's in his office. Yes. Yes. So I finally watched this thing on video. And I remember at the time thinking it was a pretty decent movie. Uh, or, or maybe I even caught it on cable. I don't remember. I remember really being into, uh, because he reminded me of myself, I was into the Keith Gordon character. So that's the thing, right? So this one, I just, I almost set it up when I said when you're a kid watching it. Yeah. So the Keith Gordon character, whether you know this or not, I don't know, is based on De Palma. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. So he was a computer nerd. Yeah. And built things like Keith Gordon did. Yeah. And uh, his father was cheating on his mom. Mm. The mom sent him out with his eight millimeter camera Mm. to take evidence. Wow. He went and spied on his father. So this is where you get this spying on people through videos and films throughout his work. And you'll see this early De Niro character in these early films of his. And it all has to do with this voyeuristic aspect of him having to go spy on his father when he was like 14, 15 years old. Okay. Well, now so much about De Palma makes sense. He confronted his father and threatened him with a knife. Wow. Yeah. And he says he was overdramatic. He was a kid. And then the parents got divorced and he got over it, as we said. (laughs) But, But this idea of the voyeurism stuck with him. As a teenage boy watching this film... What do you think works? The idea that a very hot, high-class prostitute would have a very weird motherly kind of sexual kind of relationship going on. That's like every teenager's <laughs> fantasy. And that's well, but it's not even really sexual, which is what I like about it. It isn't, but yet it is. It's a weird thing. It, like it, he needs a yeah, surrogate but- for his mom, but like <laughs> suddenly, like at the you know, in the ending of the movie, she's like sort of living with him or something. It's very yeah. It, <laughs> the ending. So I hadn't seen that. Like I saw it one time from beginning to end. Oh, okay. And they ne- and I never saw it in its widescreen format. I saw it right. probably on you know pan and scan. And yeah, yeah, yeah. One three three VHS. TV. Yeah. So, Criterion has this. I decide I'm going to watch this. And what I was struck. There's a couple things about this movie that were striking me at the exact same time. And this is really what got me saying I want to watch as much of De Palma as I can yeah. now. At once, the whole movie, every setup, everything I felt was so false and bogus and could never happen and is totally ridiculous <laughs> and totally predictable and you can see it and it's manipulative. And at the same time, it's done with such craft that I was, with, like you just said, a smile on my face for the whole yes. movie. And that yeah. was what I found fascinating was that it was totally manipulative. And totally hokey and totally <laughs> preposterous and absurd weren't you wondering like who could have fallen for this movie as far as like (laughs) was there anybody surprised by this film and there was at the time people found it like shocking well okay so this trick that he does do you know what the trick is yet or am i going to be telling you you're going to be telling the trick okay i want to hear what you think it is because i'm i was surprised this is not a trick necessarily but it's something that he does a lot which is that the first part of the movie is about a character who's not around in the latter part of the movie. Which is like a nod to Hitchcock. It is like a nod to Hitchcock, exactly. And and so this movie starts off with Angie Dickinson, but she's not the main character. Well, you're focusing on her at the beginning so that he can pull the rug out of it. for Right, but you kind of think she's the main character in the, in the same way that, like, Sisters has really, you know, Margot Kidder's not there much in the second half of the movie. 
Right. She sets up she the person, sets up. and then it becomes yeah. a mystery. Where so, but he does this other thing too. When you remove one female lead, you replace her with Nancy Allen. With Nancy Allen, which I'm going to make a confession. Yes. She never had a big career. And some say that it's De Palma blacklisted her when they got divorced. Okay. Uh, that's, that's some rumors. She won't talk about She respects him as a filmmaker. And they don't, I don't know what happened there. Right. But they, they met on the set of Carrie. Yeah. And then they fell in love. And then they got married. And then they got divorced. Uh, and she was in several of his movies. Yeah. I, from a kid, I always had a huge crush. Me too. Uh, Nancy Allen, I, there's just something about her. I just like her look. I like the way she talks. And Me too. I kind of find her performances interesting. I do too. I even like her <laughs> in RoboCop. Well, I mean, yes, she's great in RoboCop. I never saw the sequels, but she's in those too. Yeah, I had a big crush on her as a teenager. Huge crush. Yeah. Huge crush. So I'm a, so I'm a Nancy Allen fan, and I think that uh, – yeah, there's just, there's something about her, which I think also De Palma exploits in these movies. What's interesting is that she kind of takes on, in Dress to Kill, she kind of has the uh, the Jenny Salt role. Exactly. Well, that's the thing. There's also in Sisters, Jenny yeah. Salt, who was a friend. And I don't you know, I haven't been able to find anything on that, whether or not Jenny Salt and De Palma were a thing. I'm not getting into that. Oh, you know some things? <laughs> oh, you, you think someone's going to kick your door down and tell you? But, you know, she was in also Obsession. Yes. So that sounds like there might have been a thing. I, I, there was something going on there. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then she stopped being in this movie. So, you know. Well, well you know what? She stopped it because he met Nancy Allen. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. 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 Um, you're supposed to think there's this killer out there. Yes. And that, is a, that it's a patient of Michael Caine's. Yes. Right? And then- De Palma <laughs> goes to great lengths, by the way, yes. to trick you into thinking, because he will sort of show you this other person. Yeah. And of course, again, it probably it does not cut uh, the mustard in today's standards, but there wasn't any uh, movies being made about transgender people. Right. Uh, back in 1980. And I don't think it was handled very sensitively, you might say. Oh, I would go even further than that. <laughs> yeah. And I think there was probably, uh, there was controversy about that, but it was overshadowed by the controversy of misogyny. Right. In Dress to Kill. <laughs> um, in the way that they showed some sexuality. And so a lot of that was just this opening dream sequence that Angie Dickinson has uh, yes. in the shower where she's kind of attacked from behind by somebody who's maybe sexual assaulting her right. and the whole thing is is that all of the nudity in the film which is very graphic is done by a body double right um which i think Nan angie dixonson liked not right. only having to do those scenes but also liked the fact that there was a lot of attention for those who didn't understand it was a body double paid on the fact that wow someone in their late 40s looked that good <laughs> so okay while we're, while we're on this though i just have to say dress to kill i feel like is incredibly offensive well, yes. <laughs> and is part, no, but, and, and this movie is like, when people talk about Hollywood transphobia, this is one of the classics. Yes. Uh, I can see people wanting to cancel this movie. I mean, if this came out now, it would be canceled in a second. Well, here's the thing is, do you know, this is the interesting thing. The genesis of this movie uh -huh. came for, he couldn't get the other film that he originally was attached to. Uh -huh. He couldn't get it off the ground and he gave up on it. And he took the themes of that movie to make this film. Do you want to know what that was? What? Cruising. 
I want to talk about cancel. Cancel? You couldn't do cruising, so he did dress to kill. Does it make a little bit more sense now, sir? It makes a little more sense. Yeah. So, wait a minute, but talk about offensive. He does one of those those classic chase scenes, yes. right? Um, well, we, you had mentioned already, like, the, there's that scene in the... Um, in the museum. And that's a classic, right? Yeah. It's just, you know, ridiculous, and it turns into something very passionate, and, uh, <laughs> so and, 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 and it's weird and cool. It's so absurd. But there's also a scene where it's the first glimpse that you get of the killer outside the museum. You see, a, you see it mm-hmm. uh, pass really fast. Um, but what I found kind of offensive, and this is just the way Hollywood do, does these scenes, when Nancy Allen is being pursued on the train. Right. Well- She's being pursued by a gang. Well, <laughs> nowadays, the politically correct gang is filled with these white toughs. Right. But in this, she's being harassed by a pack of black guys. Yes. And and they're not <laughs> – the way they look is they just look like normal guys. They're not like wearing gang outfits or anything. No, but it was this idea that there's white fear, right? A white yes. woman has yep. to be afraid of a black man. Um, the train sequence, though, is, again, it's classic to Palma. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He executes these. I mean, and that's one of the things about Dress to Kill is that almost across the board, it's really well executed. Yeah. Now, I'm going to tell you now again for an audience member that's like, I got to see this Dress to Kill. I've never seen it. Great. Well, you're going to have to tune out for a couple of minutes because I will spoil it because I think it's important for those who have. Right. So the whole surprise is that you think that there's this transgender patient of Michael Caine. Yes. Who just every time you see the person looks like Michael Caine. Looks like Michael Caine somehow. (laughs) And and surprising at the end. It's Michael Caine. Wow. I can't believe somebody who throughout the movie looks like Michael Caine with a wig is Michael Caine. Turns out to actually be Michael Caine. But then somebody, if they want to feel tricked, said, well, I don't understand because there was a scene. They showed a cross cutting where Michael Caine's (laughs) talking to somebody on the phone, but at the same time that the other one is. So how could it be the same person? So there's De Palma manipulating, but that, oh no, because there happens to be somebody from the police department who's been tailing Nancy Allen who looks just like the Michael Caine character, who's an actress named Susanna Clem. And she happens to look almost identical, which is another classic De Palma, you know, fake out. Yeah, the, the classic De Palma. And it so often happens with women who look like each other. Okay, but here's the thing. This is going to blow your mind. And I didn't know this myself. And this is where he tricked me. But I'm also angry because I think this also adds to the falseness because he's tricking an audience. Right. So guess what? With the exception of the very end when they're in the office and when right. Michael Caine gets shot, you know, and, and the wig comes off. Yeah. All of the other parts where you see him dressed as the woman. Yeah. Is Susanna Clem. <laughs> he pulls a fast one on the audience. So so you actually are looking at somebody that looks like Michael Caine in drag, but it's actually Susanna Clem the entire time. That is hilarious. So he has Susanna Clem playing the detective Michael and Michael Caine oh, because she looks so much like Michael Caine. That's brilliant. And it's brilliant at the same time. Yeah. So that's the ultimate fake out. That is the ultimate De Palma fake out. And that's wow, what that's really great. made me appreciate because I'm like, fudge, this guy, <laughs> like he's, he's, he's playing with layers of expectation because we're like, well, it is him because that justifies, again, why you're looking at a couple of times you think that you're seeing, yeah. but you're seeing her as the detective, but then you also see her as him. 
that is amazing. That is that is a, a classic De Palma fake out. Wow, that might be the best De Palma fake out. It is, and then of course there's all this stuff with the mirror. He has these intricate shots to try, yes. I guess, to, to talk about duality and people's dualities. Exactly. Like Michael Caine, like what I like is that you mentioned about these genre movies where you know you have medium close up and yes. it's just like let's get this scene shot and let's move to the next scene exactly yeah de palma thinks about how am i going to edit in camera by exactly. setting up i want to be able to show two different characters but i want to have a point of view so now the mirror is going to act as the face of one yes. person and another person and now he doesn't even have to cut Exactly. And that's very interesting to me. <laughs> well, and it happens over and over again that he, I mean, some of his scenes I watch and I think there was very little for the editor to do here because he's got the shots set up in a way that they can't be cut together any other way. So that's the thing is it's a puzzle. And if you try to put the puzzle together in a different way, it doesn't work. And that's what's going to tie into a couple films from now. Well, what else do you have to say about Dress to Kill? Other than that, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it, but I, I, I can't recommend it because it's so offensive i said i mean i guess you got to know what you're getting into but like i've heard a lot of people complaining about address to kill over the years yeah but people are going to always complain about everything and the fact is is that this i know is but, 1980 but, though i know but the, okay I, it was the scene where nancy allen is explaining transsexualism oh that's right because the people are overhearing it right and yes in, and in she's the restaurant and, and she's explaining it to keith gordon and it's just one of those De Palma explanation info dumps and it just it felt well it just it just made no sense well you're feeling it 40 years later though oh i know i know i'm just saying that this movie is 40 years old i guess yeah. that's what i'm saying i mean think about think this again if you want to talk about where where we are in a country as far as progress people always think that oh we haven't gone far well then you watch a movie like dress to kill <laughs> and you'll see that we've come a long way yeah and think about this is kind of the mores of the time yes Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, forget about the fact you should be uh, uh, offended that, you know, Nancy Allen, who was his wife at the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's playing this. His version of her is this high class, savvy uh, <laughs> prostitute. prostitute. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, like I said, there's so many things that shouldn't even make sense. But Brian De Palma doesn't care about that because he has his film in mind. And then he does a fake out at the end where the only reason, I guess, for the fake out is. Is because he wants to have this awesome sequence with Nancy Allen in the shower. Yes, that's the entire reason for the fake out. Yep. And it's funny because I think on its own as a kid, I probably didn't pick up, oh, how much it mirrors the end of Carrie. Oh, yeah, I definitely didn't pick that but up. But the Fury, just two years later with Amy Irving, does a callback to Carrie and has a Carrie <laughs> ending as well. So he yeah. has his so, thing. So he's got his thing. Yeah. And so then it goes body double, right? So yeah, now body I'm double. Like, yeah, but in between Dress to Kill, we did Blowout and Scarface. Blowout. I, I know. I feel like we, it's like funny. I didn't rewatch Blowout, but I almost feel like it's the one that everybody feels is this masterpiece. Right. And it has a lot of De Palma stuff in it. And Nancy Allen, guess what? And Nancy Allen. She great, another a great class Nancy, prostitute. As a high class prostitute. <laughs> uh, and then he did Scarface, which was more of a studio film. Yep. And again, we, we talked about that in the last episode. And then he, he decides to go back to uh, trying to be an auteur in low budget thrillers and comes up with uh, uh, Body Double. 
Thank you for listening to this second installment of Brian De Palma. Hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, This is Jim, and I am signing off for now. Uh, We're going to pick this up in our next episode, uh, where we're going to start to talk about uh, Raising Cain, and that's going to be pretty cool. And we're also going to get into Body Double a little bit more and some other De Palma stuff to finish it off. Um, And then we're so into De Palma after this that I think we're going to try to tape a fourth episode. Um, so just be prepared for that in the future. Uh, anyways, uh, StuffWeSeen.com is the place that you can find all of our episodes very easily. Or you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We should be there. Uh, again, uh, ratings and comments are always appreciated. And certainly you can send your feedback to us at feedback at stuffweseen.com. We always like to hear from our listeners, and as a matter of fact, we've got a listener who sent some feedback recently on our website, and we are going to be working on seeing the films that he recommended that we watch, and we're going to talk about those in an upcoming episode, so lots of good stuff coming. All right, stay safe, everybody. Bye. Bye.